Hello and welcome to episode 8 of our podcast series. This features material from our January 2022 print edition of the Future Leaders Communique. I'm Dr. Brendan Morrison, your host for the Future Leaders Communique podcast series. This podcast focuses on the nature of teams and teamwork. We've taken the opportunity to divide the podcast into two parts. In part one, we present two case reports along with reflective questions you should discuss with your team. This is followed by our expert commentary from a human factor psychologist, Dr. Shelley Jeffcott, who explains the five forms of dysfunctions affecting teams and teamwork. In part two, we present three perspectives about teams, which include frank and honest views from a junior medical officer and an allied health professional. To round out this episode, Professor Joe Ibrahim provides a short commentary about recognizing the role of junior doctors in promoting patient safety. And of course, we conclude with comments from our peers. Let's now listen to the editorial. Editorial. As we enter the third year of this COVID-19 pandemic, we must continue to adapt and be flexible to deliver the healthcare our patients require. This is a challenge no other cohort of junior health professional staff have ever had to face. Worn down by constantly working, wearing personnel protective equipment and isolated from our colleagues and patients and their families to reduce the risk of infection. Each week brings changes, not just changes in clinical practice to which we all expect to happen, but changes to how clinical services are organised and how a workplace operates. These are structures we assumed would be stable and constant. Added to these are the pressures from constant reshuffling of our rusted hours and clinical roles, the shuffling of our workloads to continue while short-staffed, not knowing if we or one of our colleagues will be off work because they are the next COVID-positive case or being furloughed as a close contact. To top it all off, the ability to rest and recuperate from these physically and psychologically wearying duties is also compromised. The challenges of daily life are far greater than ever before. There seems nowhere for one to go to escape and get some temporary relief to recharge. Despite these challenges, the health professions as a whole and junior staff have been resolute, determined and stepping up to meet these challenges. A core element of the success in clinical service continuity is teamwork, the theme of this Future Leaders Communique. Due to the increased workload pressures from the pandemic, The ability of our junior medical guest editors to combine clinical duties with production of an edition of the Future Leaders Communique have not been possible. As such, this Future Leaders Communique issue does not have a guest editor and instead their senior editors have stepped in as one would expect in a team-based activity. This edition continues our approach of including comments, feedback and insights from our junior medical colleagues. We have two case reports from past issues to anchor the themes along with reflective questions you should discuss with your team. This edition draws on multiple perspectives about teams, including a frank and honest view from Dr. Georgette Pasch, who has just completed her one-year internship to become a junior medical officer, and Mr. Sally Eastwood, an allied health professional. Our expert commentary is written by a human factor psychologist, Dr. Shelley Jeffcott, who explains the five forms of dysfunctions affecting teams and teamwork. 
To round out this edition, we have also included a short commentary about recognising the role of junior doctors in promoting patient safety, which was the primary goal for establishing the Future Leaders Communique. Ten years have passed since our original academic work with Victorian Managed Insurance Authority to identify and promote a greater role for junior doctors in patient safety. It seems timely to revisit the ideas and remember to encourage junior doctors to speak up and share their perspective. Let's now listen to a description of our first case report titled Closing the Loop. Case number one, Closing the Loop from Case Pracy author Noah Ferrer. Clinical summary. Mrs. M, a fit 69-year-old woman, underwent an uncomplicated elective laparoscopic cholecystectomy. The next morning, upon review by the surgical team, it was decided that she should remain in hospital for another night for observation due to shoulder tip pain and nausea. That afternoon, Mrs. M was transferred without the consultation of the surgical team from the surgical ward to a low dependency rehabilitation unit. By the next morning, she was tachycardic, diaphoretic, and had a distended abdomen. Mrs. M was reviewed by the rehabilitation ward medical officer who prescribed intravenous fluids and analgesia, ordered blood tests, and requested an urgent surgical review. The surgical team then saw Mrs. M as part of their morning ward round. On review, Mrs. M still had generalized abdominal tenderness with abnormal vital signs, and an abdominal X-ray and CT scan were ordered. Mrs. M continued to deteriorate over the day. Another set of abnormal vital observations was taken following the ward round, which showed a fall in her oxygen saturation level, hypertension and tachypnea, a pulse rate reading was not recorded, yet no doctor was informed. Mrs. M was seen by two of the unit's interns after they were called to review her in the CT room for an observed change in her condition. They found her looking pale and unwell and relayed their concerns to their registrar over the phone who told them to treat Mrs. M with intravenous fluids and analgesia. The registrar contacted the consultant surgeon to discuss the blood results and again to discuss the CT findings. It was decided that Mrs. M was to return to theatre later that day for explorative laparotomy, followed by transfer to ICU for post-operative observation. The intensivist on duty reviewed her and diagnosed peritonitis and renal failure and prescribed triple antibiotic and rapid intravenous fluid therapy and strict monitoring of fluid balance. Mrs. M was concurrently seen by the anaesthetic house officer on duty for a pre-anaesthetic assessment. As she had single intravenous access, only one antibiotic was administered by the time she was called to the operating room. Once in the operating theatre, surgery was delayed by an hour and 10 minutes. This was due to Mrs. M becoming profoundly hypertensive upon anaesthetic induction. A bile leak was found intraoperatively and the abdomen lavaged. It was not discovered until her arrival in ICU later that evening that Mrs. M had only received one of the three prescribed antibiotics. She was severely septic by then, requiring inotropes, dialysis and mechanical ventilation. A second laparotomy two days later found widespread bowel and hepatic ischemia and Mrs. M died the next day of multi-organ failure. Author's comments. 
What is striking is that despite being reviewed by a succession of doctors, shortcomings in supervision, allocation of responsibility, and communication during handover and transfer resulted in a significant delay in administering adequate treatment, which proved fatal. Editor's questions for reflection. How many clinical teams do you consider were involved in this case? How many teams would the patient have considered involved? What factors impacted on the performance of individuals within their medical specialty teams? What factors impacted on the performance between the different teams? How could this be improved? Let's now listen to a description of our second case report, titled, It's All Too Confusing. Case number two, It's All Too Confusing, from Case Pracy author, Joey Lamb. Clinical Summary Mrs. D was an 82-year-old widow who lived alone and independently with a past medical history of insulin-requiring diabetes mellitus, coronary artery disease, hypertension, and visual impairment. Her family noticed that she had not been herself for a few weeks and brought her to the hospital where they explained Mrs. D appeared confused, weak, and had a loss of appetite. On examination in the emergency department, Mrs. D was febrile with a temperature of 38 degrees Celsius with multiple leg ulcers and was subsequently admitted to the hospital under the care of a general medical team. Throughout Mrs. D's inpatient care, the clinical team consisted of multiple doctors of varying levels of experience and would change multiple times. Various junior doctors would be the first point of contact for any day-to-day concerns regarding her care. She was also attended to by a team of allied health professionals, including physiotherapists. Mrs. D was given a provisional diagnosis of delirium, most likely due to an infection that had developed in her leg ulcers on a possible background of undiagnosed dementia. She was commenced on culture-guided antibiotic therapy. In the weeks that followed, despite antibiotics, the treating team, nursing and allied health staff noted that Mrs. D was becoming more agitated, confused and required more assistance with her mobility and attendance to self-care. Mrs. D also developed urinary retention, constipation and an increased number of falls. The medical team were concerned that she may have an underlying neurological cause to her worsening delirium. A CT scan of her brain was ordered. However, there was no significant signs to suggest a neurological component to her confusion and functional decline. Over the next few months, the prevailing cause for Mrs. D's clinical picture would be the poorly controlled pain from her leg ulcers. Initially, Mrs. D's pain was treated with regular paracetamol. However, her pain did not seem to improve over a course of weeks. Despite being opioid naive, the team commenced Mrs. D on a fentanyl patch of 25 micrograms for every 72 hours. It was unclear whether there was any dissent from the medical team or ward pharmacist to suggest alternatives for analgesia for Mrs. D. Some months later into her inpatient stay, Mrs. D's cultures of urine and leg ulcers were clear, but her mental and physical function continued to decline. Nursing staff documented that she was swinging between very agitated to exceeding drowsiness. The physiotherapist noted that Mrs. D was requiring the assistance of one to two people at times to mobilise. 
Despite these concerns, the treating team persisted in treating Mrs D's pain. There were no further investigations to elicit the source of pain. There were also no considerations given at this point to reconciling Mrs D's medications. Haloperidol was used at times to control her agitation. The team increased her fentanyl patch to 100 micrograms every 72 hours. Over the next few days, the nursing staff reported that Mrs. D was becoming increasingly obtunded with intermittent twitching. She now required two to three staff members to mobilise her and attend to her personal care needs. Her bowel motions were becoming difficult. She would not open her bowels for up to five days at a time. Despite ongoing opioid use, the medical team only charted as required appearance to address this issue. Mrs. D continued to decline. The treating team still assumed that it was her painful leg ulcers and proceeded to increase her fentanyl dose, reaching a dose of 200 microgram fentanyl patches every 72 hours. Some days later, Mrs. D was found dead by nursing staff. Following an autopsy, the cause of death was fentanyl overdose. Specifically, the post-mortem blood fentanyl concentration was 32 nanograms per milliliter, a potentially fatal level considered as more than 3 nanograms per milliliter, associated with fentanyl patch sedation. Fecal impaction, 215 gram mass of impacted, constipated faeces distended the lower rectum with partial chronic bowel obstruction and early aspiration pneumonia. Author's comments. Mrs. D had a team of medical, nursing and allied health involved in the provision of her care. Yet despite the amount of expertise made available to her, the management plan seemed to have been followed without critical review. Editor's questions for reflection. How did teams develop single-minded and unquestioning approaches? What could we do to prevent this from occurring? How do we develop a team culture that welcomes challenges to decisions? Let's now listen to the commentary titled Dysfunctions Affecting Teams and Teamwork from an interview with Dr. Shelley Jeffcott, who is a psychologist who studies, teaches and applies the science of human behaviour to improve patient care. Based in Scotland, Dr. Jeffcott has been working as an embedded part of frontline teams, designing, developing, testing, implementing, and then evaluating safety interventions. First for a large national program called the Scottish Patient Safety Program, and subsequently for the Scottish Ambulance Service. Expert commentary number one, dysfunctions affecting teams and teamwork from Dr. Shelley Jeffcott. During the pandemic, some groups are working extraordinarily well, while others have become fragmented. In the current circumstances, we must rely on our teams much more, and here we need trust and psychological safety. Psychological safety is a shared feeling that it is okay to be open and honest in a group setting. When things change rapidly, communication is coming at us from all over. We are overloaded. When decisions leading to major changes are being made on an hourly or daily basis, we are going to make mistakes. In these circumstances, we must forgive and learn so we are focusing on how we get through this, how we innovate, how we share the ideas we have, how we are able to challenge decisions we think may not be working. It is important to feel that you are part of a team because the burden is too great to carry on your shoulders alone. I think that it is hard to eliminate that feeling of being alone. 
To do that, we need peer support groups. This is basically just about tapping into informal but helpful support that you get from peers and supervisors. It's important to talk about challenges and opportunities at work. This must be done in a way that makes you feel safe and makes you feel that you can tap into that camaraderie. The team usually has people that know what it is like to walk in your shoes and may be able to share their advice and opinions with you to help. We all think of teams differently, depending on who we are and the work we are doing. Commonly, your team is your immediate peers who are doing similar work and have common goals and challenges. But of course, teams exist all through organisations, across departmental boundaries and up and down the organisation too. Hierarchy is a very interesting concept that can impact on team and individual work. It affects the way we interact and relate to each other and to those who supervise our work. Lencioni describes the five dysfunctions of teams in his book titled The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. The first of which is the absence of trust. The second is the fear of conflict. The third is a lack of commitment. The fourth is avoidance of accountability. The fifth is inattention to detail. I think that if we run along hierarchical lines, we are more likely to fall into one of those dysfunctions. The first is about absence of trust which really goes to the idea of psychological safety. Without trust, we are much less likely to be able to understand the work that happens. We are much less likely to hear from the voices we need to hear from in order to understand the nature of the real challenges and opportunities. Have you ever seen the iceberg of ignorance? This is the idea that 100% of the problems are known at the bottom levels, while only 75% of the problems are known at the supervisory level. As you move higher and higher, knowledge of the problems decreases until you get to the top level and there is only knowledge of between 7% and 10% of the problems. So there is a muting or censorship of the reality of what is happening in the front line as you go up. This is because people do not want to hear bad news and people are frightened to share bad news. The second dysfunction is around fear of conflict. This is something that I find fascinating and related to psychological research done in the 1970s. Although we are all individuals with our own views and worldviews, just like in high school, we still want to be popular. We still want to be a harmonious group. Even if it is dysfunctional, we do not want to stick out. It is a frightening thing to be other, so that fear of conflict can suppress our ability to be open and honest, to question things or to bring new but divergent information. I think that is hugely problematic in many ways. The idea of a lack of commitment is an interesting one. It is the third dysfunction of a team. It is not the idea that people do or do not want to do their best. It is more the idea that there is no constancy of purpose or shared mental mode of the plan of work. There is no sense that you are all trying to achieve a shared goal. So, people become disenfranchised because they do not really feel that they are included in the decisions being made and they do not get a full picture of what is going on. They do not feel that they have been communicated with well. A lack of commitment is, from a psychological perspective, when you become less intrinsically motivated. Intrinsic motivation would be the feeling that you just want to do your best and are proud to be working in the team. On the other hand, Extrinsic motivation is when you do something, for example, because otherwise you will get into trouble. 
for example, you're worried about getting your wages docked, extrinsic motivation does not create a nice environment. The fourth point is avoidance of accountability. This is the idea that, as I said earlier, with respect to psychological safety, your leaders are able to admit when they have done wrong or when they do not know all the answers, despite doing their best given the circumstances. This is very critical. If they do not do that, they avoid being accountable. That filters down and can result in a toxic team. The fifth dysfunction is inattention to results, which is where the focus of the team member is on their own personal success rather than the success of the team. This is the mindset where a person is thinking, I want to maintain my status and protect my ego, and is putting that before everything else that the team needed to succeed. Characteristics of strong teams include 1. Psychological safety 2. Supported communication flowing up, down and across groups, such that silos break down 3. Situational awareness opportunities and 4. Shared mental models Remember the workplace and team culture is not just something that happens to you. It is something you are a part of, that you can create. Some of the best and smartest people I've ever worked with are the clinically untrained support staff. I think everyone has value which comes through when you begin to create opportunities for people to come together, show their value, speak up safely and show their experiences. How can you help us to create more cross-fertilization between different groups, up and down the hierarchy, to all come together and talk about how work really happens? Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast episode. The second and final part provides additional interesting insights and is well worth a listen as we'll consolidate the ideas we presented here. I'm Brendan Morrissey. Thanks for listening.